I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day team and welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of the Warrior You Podcast. This is the 100th episode, and I'm proud to report that during this first season, the show has had 230,000 downloads and counting. It's amazing. As I set about to do 100 episodes and hoped that we would get 50,000 downloads, or thereabouts, so nearly a quarter of a million downloads. The very first episode featured my great friend, US Green Beret, Kevin Finnegan. Then we had Commando Reese Dowden on the show, Olympic rower Sam Locke. Also, I interviewed Dr. Lees Notbart, who talked about cognitive dissonance. That episode was just incredible. Um, Episode 15, I think it was. Yeah, episode 15. I talked all things combat with Justin Huggett, MG, Medal of Gallantry. I talked survival with US SF Green Beret, Mike Glover. And who can forget about episode 40 with The Bradley Cooper when we talked about resilience and mental toughness? Or episode 50 with the one and only Jocko Willink, which I think is the biggest name, well, it's definitely the biggest name I've had on the podcast so far. Episode 77 with Anthony Platter, who was a commando company sergeant major in 2nd Commando Regiment in Afghanistan. That is one of my all-time favourite podcasts. Um, We just sat around a hotel room, drank wine and talked about old times, as I did with Paul Cale on a few episodes as well. Episode 79 is another standout show, Talking Leadership, with Ryan Hawke from the Learning Leader podcast say that he's one of my mentors. He's one of those leadership guys who really stands out for me that I like to follow each week. The list of amazing people goes on and on. 100 shows, and so I thought we'd go out into season two with a bang. Wait until you hear who's on this week's show. Now, before we get into the show, if you'd like to learn more about leadership, resilience, human optimization then my book, Commando Way, is for you. It's going to hit the shelves in all good bookshops on August 4th, just in time to pick it up for Father's Day. And it's also available now for pre-order through Booktopia and also Alan and Unwin. I'm giving away one signed advanced copy of my book each week leading up to the Commando Way's release on August 4th. I'm picking one follower at random from Instagram who has changed their profile picture to the photo of my book cover. It's that easy. Change your profile photo to that of the Commando Way and you're in the running. I want to thank all my sponsors over the last 100 episodes too. In particular, Aussie Strength who've been there from the start and also Ironside Coffee who are a great support for a long period of time. And I want to thank all my guests too. 
next season, I'd love to interview more Australians who have lessons for us in the areas of leadership, resilience, and human optimization. I want to keep us on our journey of self-development because maybe that's all there is to life, continuing to live the process of being better than yesterday. So if you know an academic or a person who has life lessons that we can all learn from and that we need to hear about, then send them my way. Bram at warrioru.com.au Now, this week on the Warrior U podcast, I'm talking to Commando Dean Parkinson. Dean joined the Army as a 17-year-old back in the late 1980s, so he's just a little bit before my vintage, not much. He started his career in the 3rd Battalion, where he found his passion in parachuting. His career was cut dramatically short in 1991 when he was seriously injured in a horrific aircraft crash, which killed two people and left nine others seriously injured. After the accident, Dean really struggled with depression and set about recovering and building himself a new life outside the army. But the whole time, he felt himself drawn back to the establishment. In 2007, Dean re-enlisted, and I know that for a fact because I helped re-enlist Dean when he came to a special forces training centre, Careers Night. He attempted the commando selection, around 33 years old I think he was, so he did the commando selection and training course. Not even two years later, he would be a Ford Scout in the Green Belt of Afghanistan in a patrol led by none other than Corporal Baird, Corporal Cameron Baird, VC. It's safe to say that Dean had unfinished business with the Army, and I think that when you listen to the podcast, you'll come to the same realisation that I did, that the Army had unfinished business with Dean, who would be involved in some of the most historical moments of the 2nd Commando Regiment. Strap yourself in for this one, as it's so good. Welcome. Hey, Graham. How are you? Thanks, buddy. How are you? I'm good, mate. You, you have one of the most unbelievable, interesting life, army life stories. Should I say army life, army life, army stories? Um, I reckon of anyone that I've ever served with or around and um, played a small part in that just quietly as well. Yes. I think you and I are going to collaborate on on you writing a book. It is that interesting. Generally, when people say to me, hey, I want to write a book, I'm like, yeah, okay, mate, um, whatever. You know, like, because I get that shit all the time. Like, hey, I want to write a fiction book or I want to write this. I want to write my life story. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Because most people just aren't committed to the process. And then when I started, you know, going back and forwards with you about all the stuff you've done, I didn't realize how many things, especially with the unit, how many, how many important things that the unit went through that you were there to see firsthand. And then also just stuff that you've done in your own personal life. We will get to, at some point, the fact that you're in um, Bravo Company in Afghanistan with Cam Baird, Tim Applin, Merv McDonald. So we'll get to that a little bit later on. And for, for most of you who are listening, you'll know that we're talking about legends within the unit. And of course, we're going to talk about your modelling career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's start at the beginning. Yeah, mate. So I had, a, I had a very normal upbringing, very normal, humble upbringing in Mackay. Uh, I was raised by, you know, my mum and dad and... Dad was a hard worker. At, uh, he worked at the meatworks and uh, he'd sort of gone early in the morning and he would come home sort of late in the evening. Mum worked as well. I've got two sisters. It, growing up in the 70s, uh, I ended up going to a Catholic school for high school and I uh, joined the cadets when I was 13, 12 or 13 in, in year eight. 
Uh, and that's sort of like uh, where my real interest for the military came from. However, just stepping back from that, I've got a bit of heritage with the military um, through my great uncles. Uh, uh, I've, I've got a great uncle who served in the artillery in World War II and he was captured at the fall of Singapore mm-hmm. and he subsequently uh, passed away in... Uh, and another um, uncle, his brother, Uncle Digger, as I call him, uh, he was a sniper in uh, New Guinea fighting the Japanese uh, and he had a bayonet incident where he was um, you know, wounded with the bayonet and that sort of thing. But he came home and so through my early years, you know, Uncle Digger didn't talk about it too much, but I'd always looked up to him and admired him. And so, yeah, that led to the cadets and uh, a couple of years in the cadets at Christian Brothers College in Mackay. Uh, and one of the main members who would uh, come to our bivouacs, as we used to call them back then, was Keith Payne, believe it or not. Yeah. And so we had an introduction to Keith Payne at an early age and he was really strict and um you know, he was uh, fair but firm when he came out to the, the bivouacs and stuff like that. So we learned and listened from him at an early age. And two of my really good mates um, at that stage in school were the Kenny brothers, which is uh, Paul and Stuart Kenny, uh, who would, you know, later um, go on to bigger and greater things in the Australian Army. Yeah, well, Paul Kenny is the next Special Operations Commander of Australia. I think every commando is sort of quite happy about the first commando saw cost so that's a uh, that's a great thing yeah and if it's going to be anyone from the commandos uh the commando regiment i think he's just such a great choice he's level-headed knows his stuff and uh i think he's fair you know he'll be a good good choice you know he was also the first commando regular commando yeah and first officer as well yeah commando regiment yep Um, amazing yeah Yeah, that doesn't surprise me yeah so mate cadets let's just talk quickly about cadets do you think cadets are a good idea for any of the, any of the parents who are listening? You might have kids that are that age, or any kids that are sort of like fourteen to a little bit older. Do you think it's a good idea for them to go to cadets? I don't think it's a bad thing, mate. Look, I'm not quite sure how it gets run these days. Um, you know, I'm 49 this year, so um, I, I don't really know how that rolls um, in comparison to when I was at school and we did cadets. When I was at cadets, they used to issue us the 303 that we would carry around with us. You know, we, we never fired those. We fired 22s and stuff like that on our own time and stuff. But we actually did carry a weapon. And uh, it was still just about bushcraft and mateship and pushing yourself and, and good things like that. So I couldn't see the core values of cadets changing too much um, today. And look, I think it was a great thing for me back then. I loved it because I just loved going out bush and, and doing all that sort of stuff and, you know, playing army a bit, I suppose. And yeah. I certainly don't see wrong with that yeah. um well, i know exactly what you're talking about so yeah i'd encourage parents these days to yeah. let their kids have a crack whether it's i'd definitely encourage uh parents to do it yeah what year did you join the army the first time around uh 1988 Bloody i want to say 88 it might have might have been late 87 88 but um, i was at Kapuka very early 1988 so yeah. 17 years old yeah. yeah same as same as me 17 <laughs> and, and straight to three hour yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, obviously, did uh, Kapuka, then went mm. to Singleton, and you, then at Singo. Uh, were you not? Of... Um, were you not good enough to go to one hour, mate? Is that the? Is that basically what happened? <laughs> Do you know what it was? Is that I really did want to go to the ODF. I, I, I wanted to go up there when they were called ODF, Operational mm. Deployment Force, one, mm. one and two, four. Mm. I really did want to go up there because I knew that they were the the cutting edge infantry units at that stage. Mm. But I just had a a real. I mean, this is from you know reading comics and watching war movies and stuff as a kid i just want to jump out of planes mm. and so i just 
real affinity with wanting to, you know, become a paratrooper and that sort of stuff. So there was only a couple of slots each time to go to 3RER. I think it was three or four slots when we left Singo and uh, I just worked my butt off at Singo. So I got my first choice and yeah, I went to 3RER and I actually didn't even march into 3RER as a crap hat, as I used to call it then, without my wings. They actually let us finish two or three days early from Singo. We didn't actually do the march out parade at Singleton. We drove straight down to parachute training school and went straight into wow. our um, parachute training course. <laughs> so then I marched in, marched in as a lid in 1988, uh, yeah, 1988 to 3RER with um, a fully qualified bare A and wings on the shoulder. So it didn't really stick out that much, thank God. Yeah. Mate, that's the only course in the army I really wanted to top, that para course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloody terrible. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, and like, you know, you know what it's like. And okay. once you get there and you're parachuting, and it's, you know, I have to say, back in the day when we weren't really doing anything um, operational-wise, well, there wasn't a lot going on, um, going on exercises like Kangaroo 89 and things like that, and you know, and getting to jump into exercises and stuff uh, was a mm. great way to start it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And that sort of that sort of sparked your love for parachuting, didn't it? Through and something you've never really gone away from. It did. Yeah, it really did. Straight away, uh, I found out that there was a uh, military parachute club that operated out of Nara um, down at PDS on the weekends, and that we could get subsidised jumping down there. So rather than get on the, um, I want to say piss, but rather than you know get up the alcohol with all the guys on the weekend at, at the rocks on a Friday and Saturday night. I found myself uh, skipping from train to train to train and to getting down to an hour every Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And I spent the weekends down there um, getting my civilian uh, free fall. You are certifiably uh, nuts. Yeah, well, I tell you, mate, I spent hours down there locked in the old, I don't know if you know the accommodation there, you would, but the old uh, Navy accommodation they used to put up, mm. you know, guys from paracourses and stuff in and there'd be no one else there on a Friday or a Saturday night and I'll be in my room lying flat arching practicing all my you know look reach pulls and stuff like that for hours so that I didn't stuff it up the next day I was mate we went when I um was up in Charlie company when we first did the tag we we had to go down and and do uh Hewitt and it was the first time I'd been back down there for a long time. And I remember going to the front gate, just going, oh, for Christ's sake, I can't stand this place. And then I thought, oh, no, we're just going here to do we're going here to do stuff in the water. And I love the water. And then by the time we drove out of there that next morning, I had a new reason to hate Nara after being drowned for bloody 24 hours. Oh, yeah, that, that is, uh, that is a, a day that, you know, is overrated. Um, <laughs> When I did, uh, yeah, when I did the Hewitt training as well, it was the first time I'd been back to Nara for, I don't know, a decade. Yeah. And uh, I had that same feeling. I was like, ooh. I- was the plane crash you were, you were in down at Nara? It was at uh, Jasper's Brush, oh. which was, do you remember that little, yeah. you know, half an hour from Nara? Yeah. Um, yeah. We used to use that as an alternate DZ if there was too much air traffic or something else was going on at um, Albatross. And we used it quite regularly, actually. So it was just a, a grass strip with a little hanger there, and we did a heap of jumping out there as well, yeah. Tell us about the, the crash, mate. So it was just a normal. We had a freefall course going at the same time as a uh, PJM freefall course. So we had, um, we had, sorry about all the ums, but we had a caribou going at the same time as we had a Pilatus Porter. And back then, 
the rules were probably a little bit more relaxed in regards to hopping on and off sorties, even though you weren't allowed to uh, double manifest. Because I was a cameraman back then, they used to sort of let us double manifest. So I'd, I'd jump, jump straight off a load. I'd land from doing a load on the porter and I'd grab another rig and run straight over to the caribou, pop on while it's turning and burning. And it was during the day at about, uh, I think it was just after lunchtime, there'd been a short break and we decided that we were going to do another couple of jumps with the PJMs and that was made up of a few SAS guys, a couple of riggers and a couple of guys from uh, three area. So uh, I was the cameraman on that particular jump and there was, I want to say, eight of us in the back. Uh, there was no seats uh, back then. The only seat that we had was a, an old milk crate which was fastened to the floor and that was right behind the pilot seat which I sat on just so it gave me a little bit of a a chance to sort of sit up above everyone and put my camera helmet on and stuff like that when it was time to get out. So, um, yeah, we got on, we took off and the trim wasn't set. And I don't want to go into too many details about, you know, what happened and stuff like that. But, um, the, the trim wasn't set. So what that means is in a turbine aircraft, as it takes off, um, it just climbed as, as hard and as fast as it could till it went to stall point and then just winged over. And it got to about 150, 200 feet. So as it went up and we thought, oh, you know, uh, the pilot at that stage, I'll, I'll leave him out of it because he's a really nice guy, great guy, really knows his job. Uh, I'll just call him Steve. And st I just remember Steve working on, I don't know if you remember, the Pilatus Porter's yeah. sort of got uh, the, the trim sets in the middle. It sounds like a ratchet. And all I remember is the plane really surging very hard and climbing. And then just as it's starting to wing over, just thinking, oh, yeah, this is not good. This is, you know, we're not, this is not supposed to be happening. And I pretty much had the only view out the window of the door because I was sitting on a milk crate looking straight out the window. So I saw the whole, I saw the ground just come up like that, full ground rush, you know, and I yelled out, we're going in. And all I remember hearing is just the ratchet, you know, going full, full bore. I'm even getting sort of goosies thinking about it. I haven't thought about it for a long time. But yeah, I heard the ratchet going uh, all the way till we're in the ground. I've never seen the ground come up the whole way, all the way till we hit. Um, I was probably out for maybe 30 seconds or something like that, I suppose. I was out for not too long. I remember all this water pouring onto my head. And I remember thinking, coming out of, you know, being unconscious, going, what's all this, where's this water coming from, you know? And what it was, it was Avgas oh. coming out of the wing, um, pouring all over us. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was pretty horrific, you know. Like, yeah. here's all these guys, you know, a couple of SAS guys, and one particular, or two, actually, that I really like, uh, Really good guys. Steve Daly, he, he passed away in the crash. And another good mate of mine, Stumpy Payne, who's, I know a lot of guys know him because he does a lot of work overseas still mm. with certain businesses. And Stumpy, Stumpy was a short guy anyway. And, uh, you know, he ended up with a compound dislocation of his hip. So imagine seeing that. Like, yeah, that was right. horrific. Mm. Um, and the, the, pilots, the pilots' heads were pinned to the dash by part of the fuselage. And so it wasn't really good. And, Anyway, look, I tried to get up and walk out the, the hole that was created by the door, couldn't walk. Guys were right on the scene very quickly, dragged us away. Um, and as an ambulance pulled up, like a military ambulance, the old F-100s, it pulls up right in front of the plane that's leaking abgas everywhere and it catches fire. The engine of the <laughs> ambulance caught fire and the only thing they had to put it out with was the poppers from lunch. <laughs> so I remember just sitting there, Jesus. seeing guys getting dragged out of this plane. It's total chaos. The ambulance catches on fire and then there's like half a dozen guys putting out this fire with uh, juice poppers. That is just, that is just 
I mean, failure being reinforced over and over again there, isn't it? Like a calamity of errors. <laughs> um, yeah. Mate, I'm so glad that you survived that. I uh, really am. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to recount that story for the podcast because I can see that it's, you know, still something that you think about. But again, like all, like all special forces guys, you know, we, we have this amazing ability to, to, to look at those sort of things and understand that that's sometimes that's just the way life is and then draw strength from it, um, which I know you had to do in future years. Well, you broke your back in that, that crash, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, broke my back, skull, ribs, uh, left knee. Yeah, I had a heap of stuff going yeah. on. Yeah, there was, you know, multiple stitches and stuff like that. But so, um, and all so, in all, you know, I, I came out all right. Yeah, and so that and that really was a catalyst for you leaving the army that first time around, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, at that stage, I was 21, just turned 21 or so, 22 nearly. Um, and... I had no interest in getting out of the army at that stage, but they medically downgraded me. And back then, we're talking, you know, early 90s, um, the military wasn't really up on, you know, retaining guys just for the sake of retaining them and that yeah. sort of stuff like it is a little bit more today. So, look, you know, no big deal. Um, I, I did ask for 12 months off to leave without pay to rec- recuperate and lots of stuff. They basically said no. And then they said, look, you know, you won't be able to do anything that you want to do, you know, no more infantry, no more, you know, SASR selection course at that stage back then and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, no more parachuting. So I just went, well, if I can't do any of that stuff, I mean, I don't want to be in the army because it's mm. like, for me, I only want to be in the air force if I can fly fighter jets, mm. you know, and that obviously you need everyone else to, to make that happen. But you know, what, why would you not want to be doing the best job you can do? So yeah. So I got out at that stage. Yeah. And so then what, bummed around surfing yeah. parachuting recovering yeah reserve yeah, reserves yeah, and i have to tell you like looking back on it all i i was really suffering from a bit of depression and everything you know at that yeah. stage there was no one spoke to you back then you know there was there was nothing going on and i didn't even look at it like that i was just like bummed that the only thing i ever wanted to do my whole life was finished mm. and i was 22 years old and it really, really bummed me out. And mm. It's only now that I be able to reflect on that later on that I see that. But look, I bummed around for a while. Um, I did lots of sort of different jobs and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I did get back into was parachuting pretty much straight away. Um, mm. When I say straight away, you know, it maybe took me a year and a half to make sure that I was physically strong enough for a bad opening on a canopy so I didn't mm. hurt my back again. Mm. So that was I was very aware of. But, I mean, at that stage, I was, you know, pouring beers at a bar, um, you know, uh, surf coaching. They were the two main ones I did the first few years when I got out. And I ran into a guy who told me there was an indoor skydiving centre on the Sunshine Coast. Mm. And I was like, what the hell? What the hell's indoor skydiving? (laughs) So, anyway, I went down there to check it out. And it was an old DC3 prop with an 1,100 horsepower motor. And it was, you know, very, very... um, Rudimentary. Mm very rudimentary compared to what they've got these days anyway so i got a job in there um instructing and i met a guy whose dad owned aratula drop zone yeah. Pepe scoffle brian scoffle owned aratula drop zone and one thing led to another and within a month or two i was back um doing videos and then getting my tandem writing and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. It's just it continued i'm friends with from from one area and also i was on the same um i was on the same para course as um danny hogan who was the the founder, I think, of iFly? Um, yeah, yeah, lo- lovely, lovely bloke. Well, I certainly 
really liked him back in the day. We did a lot of, you know, we've been on a couple of courses together as well. And mate, so hated it, got out, did did a whole heap of other stuff trying to find yourself again and then realised that, as I have done recently, I think, realised that the army really is more than just a, a job. It's a, it's almost a life's work. So anyway, just before that, what? so I've got here in the notes that you were a Qantas Link flight attendant, mate. That made me fucking laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So you know, like you just said, uh, Bram, I I never stopped thinking about the military. Like yeah. never, I always just you know, at some stage, at some part during the day, I'd be like, man, I wish I could be doing what I want to do. Maybe I should give another crack. Let's mm. get back in. And then life takes over, and you end up doing things. So I mean, I moved to Cairns, and I did a lot of skydiving. Uh, I end up doing just under ten thousand. Uh, jumps and I've, awesome. you know, I haven't got off for a while now, but um, so I did a lot of tandems up there and I, you know, we had the, the American military come through and all sorts of things. So there was always this sort of connect through the office at work, mm. always, always, always happening. And, and look, uh, I moved down from Cairns 2001 around about August mm. and I was skydiving at, on the Sunshine Coast for a job as well. And uh, I've been at the bar Fridays having a few beers with a few civvy mates of mine at that stage and we sort of came home and I jumped over the balcony and we walked in and another mate of mine was sitting watching TV and he wasn't a real talker and he sort of said oh you guys have got to see what's on TV here mm. and I was like yeah, yeah yeah we were putting jeans on to go back out you know so it was sort of that sort of afternoon and anyway we sort of um, walked back through and then we saw the second plane flying to the building it was yeah. September 11th obviously mm. And once that sort of happened, you know, it didn't stop me from going out on the, on the beers that afternoon, actually. But um, <laughs> once that sort of happened and I sort of started thinking about the military again, mm. uh, just got me thinking about um, joining. And one of the first things that I saw was, you know, um, that they, the Army had raised this unit um, for mm. RER commando. Mm. And I sort of started, as I do, as my wife would tell you, anything that I get interested in, I'm just so diligent in like just looking at everything. So I just, you know, got information from everywhere. I actually got a couple of phone calls from guys, a mate of mine who was in the SAS at that stage. And he called me up and said, mate, you know, it's going to get really busy really quick. And mm. um, not just SASR, but the, you know, the newly raised 4RER is going to need a lot of guys too. And he said, sounds like it's going to be a great unit um, and blah, blah, blah. And, and that sort of, while I was a flight attendant, got me thinking about uh, joining back up. Mate, what makes, let's get into that in a minute. What makes a guy who's been in a devastating plane crash become a bloody flight attendant? Well, well, I'd, I've actually had three plane crashes before I became a flight attendant. I had <laughs> two more. Uh, one was uh, at Aratula, um, mm. the, the place I was skydiving at. Mm. Uh, it was a failed takeoff the oil cap wasn't put on and we had a crash landing. Um, that's just a short story of it. Mm. Everyone was fine on one. Mm. And then another one, I was with my wife, who I am now. I was with her and a brother. He owned a small general aviation airline, had a Mackay, mm. and we were going camping on a small island off Mackay. As you do. Um, as you do. Yeah, because you can fly over there, you know. Mm. And so anyway, long story short, a very, very short strip landing on an island that ends up in the water if oh. you stuff it up. And we had a new pilot who was getting her qualification to actually land on that strip for commercial reasons. And, yeah, she stuffed up the um, wow. landing and, uh, yeah, the plane was wrecked. It was a total wreck, but we 
just stop before we end up going into the uh, water. Wow. So, um, yeah, that flared up my old injury a little bit. But uh, once again, we got out of it pretty unscathed. So mm. the whole flight and the thing, mate, that brand that seriously comes from not wanting to work too hard for my money uh, at that stage in life because I was doing a lot of Ironman triathlons and stuff like that. Yeah, and I just, wanted, I just wanted a job that was a bit more steady than skydiving mm. but uh, allowed me a lot of free time to train. So you that's a, why I did the quad. Were you a sub 10-hour Ironman? No, 10 and a half. Okay, we can keep talking. Um, <laughs> yeah, so what, do you want to talk about the speed skydiving stuff before we get on to SF selection or – because I'm interested to hear about what draws you yeah. to going as fast as you can without a plane around you. Uh, I think once again, you know, like it, it sort of comes from I'm a bit of an introvert with a lot of things, you mm. know. Uh, I think once I get to know people, I'm, they pro- you know, our good friends will probably say I'm, I'm an extrovert. Mm. But I am an introvert if I don't know you, not because uh, I, I want to be a snob, it's just I've just always been like that, I think. By the, and, by the uh, way, Dean, we, we actually select for this, mate. That very trait, we select for that. We, <laughs> we want high-performing interviews. Okay, right. yeah. yeah, well, there you go. So, yeah, so when I looked at it, you know, I, I did a lot of Sibby Scott, I mean, as we mm. discussed, and we'd go, to, you know, we'd go to drop zones and stuff like that. And the biggest thing that I saw at that stage with jumping, when I was jumping um, full-time, was, you know, it was all flat-flying. So it was four-way teams, eight-way teams, um, all that sort of stuff. So you, you had to rely on a lot of other people all the time to be there. And the speed skydiving thing was in its infancy and it was sort of like the sky surfing thing. I tried sky surfing that a bit as well in its infancy as well, you know, just strap a board to our feet. We just sort of make this stuff up as we went along. Um, there was no how-to videos. You couldn't Google stuff. So I, I think I was attracted to the speed skydiving thing because it was like it was totally up to me. Um, what I'd get out of it is what I put into it. And, you know, the buck would stop with me. If I, if I was bad at it or I failed at it, I could, you know, have a good look at myself, internalise what I had to do, work it out and get on with it. Whereas, you know, if you're doing nothing wrong with teamwork, I mean, I love teamwork, but if you're relying on eight other people to, you know, turn up plus a cameraman and they've got to have the same funding and, you know, it was a hard thing to get a team together back in the day. So and that's what attracted me to it. Plus the speed thing. I mean, you know, this is before head down was regular. So now everyone goes, you know, now when people learn to skydive, They'll uh, go and put in, you know, an hour or two in the wind tunnel. Then they'll go and do their free fall course and stuff like that. And you'll just breeze through your your steps, which is smart. It's a yeah. great way to do it. It's, um, you know, the best way to do it, I'd say. But when we were doing it, it was, you know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds or 40 seconds worth of free fall time each time. And you'd add it up. Wow. And over yeah. the years, you'd, you know, tick away and you'd end up with hours. And yeah. So, yeah, so the, the speed got on me thing. I just wanted to go fast, mate, and uh, like Ricky Bobby, and it just really interested me. So I went and did a few World Cups, and uh, I think I got fifth in one of them, and wow. 501 kilometers an hour. Yeah, Yeah, wow. That's amazing. Um, mate, I had a lot of friends from the climbing community back when I was a lot lighter, um, good climbers, and they were also <laughs> they were also – they went the next step from climbing evolution, which really is base jumping. So climbing yep. is a climbing is the sort of the entry to base jumping, I guess, um, for, for parachutists yep. anyway. And some of the stuff, some of the things that they places they jumped off of, you know, just insane. Um, I know it's calculated risk and everything, but yeah, very cool. Yeah, I've got a very good friend of mine, very good friend of mine who um, 
Dugs, I'm sure he's still doing it. Um, he's probably one of the best base jumpers in the world, and he he does he trains people in Norway and stuff like that. And mm. um, you know, I've, I've known quite a lot of guys who've gone from scouting to base jumping have passed away mm. uh, because you know and that's one thing with me with base jumping. I, I mean, I I understand the attraction, mm. but the you know risk for reward for me was never quite there. You know, mm. like I never looked at it going, am I going to get such a hit out of it that that's what I want to keep doing? And it just never it just never floated in my boat. So you know, yeah. each of their own. Yeah, no, I agree. It doesn't interest me whatsoever. I've got a lot of jumps up, and nearly every one of them is in water. Um, <laughs> parachute, parachute load follows are my favourite thing in the world. When that ramp comes down, and finally you get some fresh air in there, and you're no longer breathing, blooming, you know, the bloody um, petrol from the from the boats, and then the bundle goes out the back, and then you follow it out, and you and then you're pulling on the toggles and trying to follow it down, especially at night time. It's the best. Yeah, absolutely. So SF Info Night, Nogra, 2007? Yeah, I think it was 2007. Yeah. So what do you remember of that night? City flight attendant. And at this stage, I'd already joined the reserves again and done Kapuka again. And they didn't make me do Singleton again. That was like 2003, 2004, something like that. And uh, I went to reserves and I did a couple of years there and I just hated it. Not that there's anything wrong with the reserves. It just wasn't what I expected the military to be. And I thought I could sort of do that sort of pseudo sort of life and, and, you know, keep my city life going and get that army fixed. And it just never worked. So I sort of dropped out of that. And so 2007, once again, so it was the third time. Uh, at this stage, um, I, have, I was, uh, had a family, had uh, a couple little boys and um, was with the sweetheart of my life that I chased for many years, which is a, a whole other story. Um, and... I just still kept having the bug of like, you know what, Afghanistan was on the news every night and I was seeing guys doing their bit and I was just like, you know, I just won't be able to live myself if I don't go and do my bit. Like, mm. I didn't care in what form that was, but if I was going to have a crack, I thought, you know what, I've got to have a, a go at um, selection. So, you know, I had a real heartfelt chat with my wife at that stage because, look, we had a really cruisy life then, Bram, you know, like we'd already had it, we already owned a house. Mm. Uh, we lived near the beach, we had two beautiful boys, I had a cruisy job with an airline. Mm. and life was good mm. so why mm. upset the feng shui you know and risk everything but mm. the thing was is that i just couldn't sleep at night i just wanted dearly to do it so look i did i did ask for the blessing from my wife and she was like yeah you can absolutely go and do it but she did make me make me promise and i, I made two promises i knew i couldn't keep luckily mm. i think i think I, I, I thankfully did which was one no i won't get killed and no i won't change so you know one of those happened and the other one i've probably changed a bit and i think I think I've changed for the best. So, mm. so yeah. So how do I, uh, you know, how do I start that? So I looked online and I saw that, uh, you know, um, SFTC was doing their career sort of night or their, you know, their sort of around the mm. sort of up and down the coast, the little trip where they'd go and do their, their chat. And so I went out to Inaugura and uh, basically talked my way onto the base because back then you couldn't get back on after September 11th, you couldn't get on. Mm. So I rocked up as a civvy and this guy was there and he's like, nah, you're not getting on. And then I just, I don't know. I can't remember exactly what I said to him, but he ended up letting me on. Mm. So he let me on and I sat up the back of the lecture room and I felt really out of place because I was mm. sitting there with all these fit young guys, obviously still, you know, from six RER and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I listened to uh, everyone down the front speak mm. and well, there's AS guys there and a guy from 2nd Commando Regiment mm. and um, that guy was, you know, yourself, uh, as you know. Mm. 
and I didn't have any questions and I just waited till right at the end. And at that stage, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it was you had to be 30 or under, 30 years of age or under to uh, attempt selection. So my only question at that stage was, and I put my hand up right at the end and sort of went, you know, is there any leeway on the age mm. limit? And I believe it was yourself and there was another guy, it was a warrant officer, mm. SASR warrant officer, I can't remember his name, an older guy, he was lovely. Yeah, and uh, he just looked up, and go, I think it was you actually, he might have been looked up and go, well, how old are you, mate? You don't look, and I said, well, at that stage I was 37. And you said, well, you don't look that old. And then you said, uh, yeah, wait around and we'll have a chat after. Mm. So um, I waited around till everyone left, pretty much as the last guy to leave. And I had a quick chat with yourself and Andy. And you were both, you know, seriously, like I, I was blown away. You were both really helpful. And, and you know, even though I know you, you hear everything on those tours, I'm sure you mm. do. Everyone wants to join SF and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You basically just said, righto, put your stuff, put all your shit in an email and send it to us and we'll have a look at it. Mm. And... Uh, and that's how it was. I mean, I, I remember leaving that place there, there with a hop and a skip, just going, right, you know. Um, and I got straight onto it, straight onto, you know, putting together an email about, you know, I'm skydiving, ex-army, you know, I put in about the plane crash, I put mm. in about that I was spearfishing because I'm in the water, I love water, and mm. doing Ironman triathlons and stuff like that. And and um, and I believe you called me one day from SFTC and said, hey, uh, my boss knows you. And I remember <laughs> going, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to know the boss of FTC. It's Paul, Paul <laughs> Who's Kenny. This? And you go, oh, and it was, you know, mm. Paul Kenny. Mm. And I was like, well, shit, yeah, I actually do know your boss. Mm. So, and look, and it was, I, I didn't speak to him from there. Um, I think I spoke to him maybe a little bit later on in the process after I'd gone through and I had to, you know, tick all the boxes and go and get, mm. you know, medical checks and, you know, do all the entry requirements that you have to do, um, you know, physical and mental and all that sort of stuff. And then I think Paul sort of gave me a quick call one day and said, hey, mate, um, we're going to give you a crack because mm. you've passed everything. Don't, we're not worried about the age. Um, and once you, you know, once you sort of start the process, then it's it's just going to be all up to you. Yeah. And we were riding, we were, I was riding at the time, the new standard for special forces direct recruiting and the cutoff age. And we were, we were looking at people outside of the army and there was all these civilians out there in their forties and fifties who were fit as hell, you know. So we, my my recollection is that we changed the age to fifty two, um, and that gave us more of a, a group to then look at and then pick the best, the best of the best from that group. And the good thing about Paul Kenny too is he, you know, he would never let his personal anything get in the way of the military process anyway. You know, and I know you're you're fully aware of that because you know him as well as I do. Um, Absolutely. And mate, and look, I have to say to you, mate, like after that phone call, um, I pretty much didn't speak to him until I was finished selection. I think he came down once during selection at some stage. There, didn't speak to me. He just uh, walked past, saw me doing whatever activity it was. I can't remember. Mm. We were doing some sort of live fire activity somewhere. He just walked past and he was talking to whoever else that was walking around. But, um, yeah, I had no interaction with him whatsoever until it was all mm. said and done. And, was- uh, yeah, I, I, you know what, mate? I really am very, very thankful to, you know, yourself and to Paul for actually just giving me a crack at it. Mm. Um, and whatever happened after that was always going to pull on my shoulders. And um, But I'm, I'm forever thankful for it. Yeah, it's one, of the, it's one of those things where you give people the opportunity and then they can, they can prove their supporters right. As opposed, as opposed to um, proving their support, you know, their doubt is wrong. I think that's a lot more powerful thing when you say to someone, "Okay, 
Well, here it is. Um, so 2009, let's not worry about selection. Let's get into the meat of this. So 2009, so would would um, Lieutenant Colonel Kenny at that time have been your CO overseas in Afghanistan? Or was there a transition? He was transitioning. Okay. He, he was there, but he transitioned out when we sort of transitioned in. He was there for a very brief time. I actually caught up with him over there very quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, I think he was just finishing his part of the rotation. Mm. And when we had an SASR mm. guy come on and, uh, yeah, that was nice. Yeah. So, yeah, so I saw him very briefly when we were there. Yeah, and um, two, so you had back-to-back almost trips um, just, just separated by winter season, 2009, correct. 2010, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Or no, you did the start of because I did the second half of two thousand and nine, and the s- second half of two thousand ten. So I think we went back to back on both those trips. Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Best job in the army. So we came home. Oh, it was unreal. I loved it, mate. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was unreal. You know, and, and look, two thousand and nine. Yeah, we're in Bravo company um and look um i wasn't first picked for anyone's team you know and Mm. that's just how it is i think maybe Mm. maybe guys guys are like really good mates of mine now as well Mm. um you know i think i think probably because of the age thing i suppose you know i think i did pretty good on selection and through rio um so i end up going to i just wanted to go i didn't care i just wanted to go straight away on a trip Mm. and so I got uh, put into mortars, which I was more than happy to do. And I got put into a car with two great operators. And I, I can't say their names, obviously, because I think, you know, one of them's still um, mm. working and the mm. other guy, I don't know if he wants his name thrown out there, but mm. of guys who had already done, I believe, a couple of trips each. Mm. Um, and we are also looked after um, the sergeant of our, of our uh, tribe, I'd like to say, mm. was an awesome guy who I know you know. Um, let's just say he's named after a farm animal and um, he was this, he was awesome. Yeah. He was really good in, in everything, you know? So anyway, look, so we got into 2009. Um, the second day we were out of the wire. So we'd only been there for a week, maybe our first trip was going to be, I think it ended up being 30 or 33 days in the cars into Helmand. Mm. And it was a really long trip and I loved it. It was a great trip. But our second day out, we lost uh, Sergeant Brett Till mm. to uh, an ID when he was uh, rendering it safe. Mm. And to be sitting, sitting there and actually watching it happen and seeing it happen, um, really drove home to me about, okay, so how important it is to be, you know, fully switched on. This is, you know, it just, it, look, in a really weird way, it, not that I wasn't switched on, it just made me really think about it and go, okay. Yeah, it's an A-team now. So this this is this mm. real, right? Mm. This mm. this gentleman, yeah, just lost his life and this is what's happening. So, you know, and, um, you know, that was a pretty rough afternoon, but, you know, we sort of uh, limped our way out of that valley. It took us a while to get out because I believe there's like another 10 or 12 IDs in that, that same valley. We yeah. had small gunfights and rockets and that sort of stuff all going on and, until we got to Helmand where it really kicked off and there was a lot of war fighting every day. Yeah. And I mean, that's when Dam- Damien Tomlinson lost, um, you know, his legs um, on mm. a night infield. Um, mm. So, so yeah, that, that first time outside the wire, which was over a month had a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. And the C- the CSM of that trip is a, is a really close friend of mine has been for over 20 years. Um, Platts and that, that Brett, <laughs> Brett Till's um, the loss of Brett Till really affected him. He and I don't think, and the company didn't understand 
the way that it would affect and the company commander and certain team commanders didn't understand or have the compassion or the empathy for what that did to to Platts and to some other guys. And I think that we're a lot better at that. We got a lot better at that over the years. But I think on that trip, there was a few personalities there that probably didn't understand that he that he was done after that. He tried and tried for months to, to be uh, combat effective again, but he just couldn't. You know, and I think that we probably owe it to guys like that to 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 at least identify the fact that yeah, we handled that yeah, badly. Yeah. yeah, I mean that sort of stuff. You know, as as you know, as everyone knows now, going on and you know, seeing you know how much uh, of a toll it took on just our unit. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think our unit is at least a third, if not closer to a half, of nearly all the casualties. In oh, it's the single most Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, when the, you add, yeah, the unit took the brunt of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, um, everyone's going to take it differently. Everyone's going to, you know, either bounce back earlier or, or take a little bit more time with that. Yeah, for sure. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Any other highlights from that trip, 2009? Yes, mate. One of the best highlights of that trip. I remember sitting on the back doing a picket one evening uh, where we were out in the cars and uh, I was sitting on the back of the LRPV and um, this big fella walks over, huge mountain of a man, and goes, Parco, grab your shit. I turned around, it was Cam Baird. Mm. And I was like, what's going on? He goes, you're on my team now, mate. You happy about that? And I was, I was stoked because I actually spoke to him on one of the courses uh, on Rio cycle and we had a really good chat. He was a really cool guy to talk to. And I remember, I remember, you know, he was, I was, I was 10 years his senior, mm. I should say. And uh, the chat we had during um, the phase on selection was a really good chat. And uh, I really liked the guy. And uh, anyway, he came up and said, yep, yeah, you're in my team now. You're happy with that. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. So I was going to get my chance to, um, you know, be an assaulter, mm. which is great. And along, you know, I went back over to their vehicles, the two vehicles, and uh, there's two guys that are still serving, I believe. So um, then it was myself, uh, Merv McDonald and Timmy Applin, who I did selection in Rio with. Mm. And, and um, yeah, Cam. And um, he said we had a bit of a chat last night of who we want coming over to the team. And he said it was unanimous that all the boys said they wanted you. Mm. Um, and I, I was super happy about that so i ended up getting into cam's team and i just didn't look back after that because mm. i knew we were going to do some really good soldiering mm. which we did and in fact we um, were in mirabad valley doing some sort of clearance operation or something like that we were doing at the time and we patrolled all day and just was dry hole after dry hole after dry hole and what is what moving. is what is, just so everyone who's listening knows what does that mean and what does that feel like yeah so um you know we were sort of patrolling and going up to different places of interest to see if there was, um, you know, anything there for us to do. And we were coming up empty handed. There was no one there. So, and that happened all day. And it was sort of like a, you know, and this was at the end of a, I think about a week we'd been out in the cars for about a week already. So we're sort of thinking about driving back to TK at this stage. And we did this sort of day of sort of patrolling just to to sort of have a look around Mirabad Valley and see if there's anything happening and nothing was happening so we pulled up late afternoon into this empty compound the last Mm. one one that we'd uh, been checking out Mm. and we sat down and we sort of 
the whole six of us, the team, we just, we actually, you know, really relaxed for about five or so minutes. And we just started taking these real idiot wanker photos of, you know, you see all these guys taking photos back then there was photos, you know, of, you know, guys pretending to be warring and all that sort of shit. So we all just mucked around and took these really funny photos. And I've got a photo with Cam and I, with this goat that had pink hair and just all sorts of hilarities and stuff like that. And we had a little break and, um, and I'm glad for that because I took a photo I've got a friend of mine who's still serving to take a photo of myself and Merv sitting down and mm. it's on my wall. Merv sent it to me many years later anyway. Mm. I'm glad I got that photo. But um, So we'd had a break and then we were like, so Cam said, right, we're going to go out of here. We're going to push forward probably another 500 metres and then we'll cut a left back up onto um, out into the, the dash, up to the cars who are on Overwatch and we'll get out of here. Yeah. So as we were kicking off, I sort of turned to Tim and Merv, and as I did on selection too many times, I uh, always used to tell them all the time, oh, it's got to be finished soon. It's got to be finished soon, you know, just mucking around. Sort of muck, you know, I want to say frigging around with their mind space with your mates, just mucking around saying, oh, it's going to be over soon, you know. Just keep holding that rifle up in that position. It'll be ended soon, you know, and you'll be there for another five minutes. And so I turned to both of them and went, um, and this sort of story becomes a little bit more apt later on, but, I turned to both of them and said, mate, if nothing kicks off now in the next minute, nothing's going to kick off. And Timmy just laughed and goes, oh, you're a, you're a wanker for saying shit like that. And no <laughs> sooner had I stepped three steps forward, then all hell broke loose and we're in a really good, decent tick in the green belt. Um, so, yeah, and we just went straight into our two-man uh, fire teams um, and we just started moving forward and, yeah, we sort of uh, pushed the enemy back into some compounds and that was a real um, a real sort of heavy tick. There was a lot of, lot of rounds going off around us and, you know, through the sort of thigh-high grass that were in the green belt and our team sort of got split up into our three two-man teams and we all sort of just took off and did our own thing and, one thing led to another and I end up with another guy who's still in at the moment. Let's just say my teammate. And uh, we cleared a few compounds and, and pushed uh, one or two of the bad guys back towards where Tim Applin and Bairdy were. And they end up taking out this PKM gunner. Um, and it was pretty significant because I think if they hadn't have um, shot it and killed him when, when they did, I think when myself and my teammate had have been chasing up on him, uh, I think he was preparing to um, sort of sit down and, and ambush us. So he was sort of yeah. focused on us. Mm. We've sort of pushed him into where the other guys were and Timmy Applin actually um, sorted that guy out. And so, yeah, so that contact sort of all, all went pretty well and, you know, we had a few squirters get away in a car and I think the car was then taken out by an Apache uh, that afternoon and, and it went really dark very quickly. So that all happened in the space of about, 30 to 40 minutes it was a pretty mm. heavy pretty heavy sort of firefight for you know yeah. that period of time that that contact mm. you know uh, that mirabad valley that had to be one of my favorite favorite places it just had this like we just owned it because in 2000 in on on rotation seven like we just went through it with the royal marines and just took the place over and then we just dominated it ever since and they never really they never really became settled there again. We we had the Taliban on the back foot the whole time. Yeah, and it was our it was our backyard. Yeah. And we knew it really well. Yeah, and it was a place where if you you know it was it was either one or the other. You're either going to go there and have absolutely nothing, or you'd go there and you'd get into a you know a pretty decent tick. So mm. I mean, we had a couple there over the. 
couple of trips that I did. And um, that was probably, like, that was my first real up close and personal seeing bad guys and shooting and, mm. you know, and, and chasing guys and, and having rounds. You know, everyone sort of asks, you know, I have people who, you know, have not been through that sort of stuff say, you know, what's it like and, and how do you handle that sort of thing? And I said, well, I have to say, after the Brett Till thing, I just had this bit of an epiphany where, okay, so listen, there's a very good chance that that could happen to me. And so I just, I was, I was okay with that, you know, like mm. I was absolutely okay with that. I didn't want to die and I didn't have a death wish. It was nothing like that, but I had my own set of rules. And that, and that day really, really uh, structured, I suppose, in my head, um, how I would feel about being it's, in operations. I wasn't afraid of getting shot, right? Dean, it's a strange, it's a really strange, sorry, mate, cut you off. Um, it's, it's, a really, it's a really strange thing. We all say it. It's like on those trips, we're all like, yep, this could be it. And I'm quite fine with that. Like I, I probably, yeah. I probably am more scared about dying now, you know, with young kids and everything, but just from a, because I'm not in combat all the time. But back then it was like, I couldn't give two shits. Yep. Sorry, yeah, mate. And what, just, you, what were you saying? No, no, no. I was just going to say, it's exactly right. Like I just, I think you have to be in that space to operate, mm. you know, level-headedly when, mm. when it all kicked off, you know, and I'm no expert. There are guys out there with a, a ton more combat experience than me. And <clears throat> But I, I think in, in you know, in the, the world of, you know, Dean Parkinson and what I, um, my experiences and the way I went through it, <clears throat> I thought you have to be accepting of it. And once you're accepting of it and you know that that could happen, then that freed you up to think properly and clearly when things, when shit at the fan. Mm rather than being worried about things, you know, worried about this and worried about that, you know. It's like patrolling all day and another time that we were in Mirabad Valley and we were down there, I think it was in 2010, and we were just like, we were sort of, you know, aiding the, the Australian post that was there. They hadn't been able to get out for about a week or two and we went down there to sort of clear out the valley a little bit and give them some space to work in. And the whole time we were patrolling and I was at the front of my team as a team scout, we kept having the icon go over, get ready to blow it now, you know, the big thing and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and so it was every, every step, you know, you're thinking, shit, am I going to stand on something here, you know, like, which I really didn't want to do. And am I going to stand on something here, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that sort of stuff plays in your mind. So you have to put that out of your mind and you just have to get on with your work and, you know, do your scans, you know, near, distance, near, uh, mid, far, all that sort of stuff and, and just do your job properly. But sorry, I just want to digress back quickly to once I was happy with the fact that, you know, not happy with, but once I was content with the fact that, okay, this could happen to me, mm. I sort of set rules in play. And, and my biggest rule was I wasn't worried about dying. I just didn't want to be responsible or my actions to be responsible for one of my mates or a team uh, member to die, yeah. right? I didn't want to be responsible because I, I fucked up. Mm. Um, the second one was I didn't want to be responsible for a civilian who didn't need to be killed, <clears throat> getting mm. killed. I didn't want to pull the trigger on someone or some kid or someone like that, that, you know, wasn't a combatant. Mm -hmm. And it worked down my list to not wanting to be responsible for one of your mates getting injured, mm. you know, or losing a limb and that sort of stuff. Mm. And then at the bottom of those little lists, so there's like four at the bottom of those lists was, I was okay if I lost an arm or a leg, but I didn't want to lose my appendage or my ability to have fun when I got home. <laughs> like, I was okay with something else, but I wasn't okay with having my dick and ball shot off, so to speak. <laughs> so, and then below all of that, Bram, you know, below all of that, the bottom one was then, you know, getting killed myself. Mm -hmm. So it was like fifth or sixth in the stack. And mm -hmm. um, that's just the way I looked at it. Mm. Yeah, see, mine was a lot more simple than that. 
I guess as a platoon commander as well, you know, I had something to prove being an ex-sergeant. I just, I just didn't want to let the team down by making a decision that would get us all killed, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was quite happy to die myself rather than make a bad decision, as terrible as that sounds. Um, no. Yeah. I think that's... Uh, no, mate, though, I think that's very apt. And I, mm. I look at the guys who are team commanders, um, you know, even two ICs that step up in country up to that job, you know, and I think that it's a big ask. And the guys that can do it, like, you know, officers, yourself, NCOs, senior NCOs, uh, I tip my hat to guys who are in charge of guys overseas like that, you know, and even to the extent of being, you know, uh, in charge of SOCOM or SOCOS and that sort of stuff and, mm. and making decisions on where and when guys are going to go and stuff like that, that has to weigh heavily on people. And I mean, I've read mm. uh, John Campbell's book mm. and I remember, I remember meeting John a couple of times overseas and um, after the Blackhawk crash, I met him when we were on our way back doing the repap with the bodies and stuff. And mm. um, what a great bloke, you know, and yeah. I can see, definitely see, you know, I don't, I don't, um, wash with this oh you know if you sit behind a desk and you're making decisions you don't feel it i don't agree with that of course mm. you do mm. um if you've got any sort of heart you do and and uh, i take my hat off to yeah. um, people who make decisions like that because yeah you're right life's you're you know you're taking other people's lives in your hands you know whether directly or indirectly yeah the toll on the toll on john cantwell was um yeah a lot it was a great toll mm. tell me about boob gate oh boob gate. oh yeah so <laughs> so so after that tick that I told you about with uh, our team, uh, with Cam Baird's team, Mirabad Valley, it went dark very quick. And we were probably 500 metres in front of the other couple of teams that were with us in the green belt that day. So we were right out. So the first thing we had to deal with was the Apache helicopter coming over saying they were going to brass up these other guys that they'd seen in the bush after they'd taken care of the squirters in the car. Uh, Cam realised very quickly that the other guys they were talking about was us. Mm-hmm. So we, we quickly knocked that on the head so that we didn't get brassed up by an Apache. Mm. And as he was dealing with that, he stayed back with one of the guys who's still in at the moment. And then the four of us, myself, Tim, Merv, and another gentleman who's still in, we started sort of just patrolling back a little bit, you know, maybe 100 metres, 200 metres maximum. And as we were going back under nods, we see three figures come out of a, um, out of a compound. One's holding an AK-47 in a bag and the other two um, were holding nothing. So as we've come up onto them, we've done the whole thing. And I can't remember the words, but, you know, I used to know a little bit of Pashtun, but we did the old, you know, hands up, that sort of stuff. And the guy that's still in now, he's a small fella. <laughs> and um, he was tasked straight away with going up, grabbing the AK-47 and putting some plastic cuffs on this guy who was holding a big bag of uh, opium tar. So he started wrestling this guy and they were wrestling on the ground. And I think it was this, this older gentleman that he was taking the AK-47 off and everything was still, you know, obviously we think he's a bad guy, but he was old. And I don't think he was really trying to, he wasn't trying to struggle. I think with the lack of communication there, he sort of didn't know what was going on. Plus it was dark and probably all he could see, it was like pitch black, was, you know, the green from nods. Mm. So that, while all that's happening, Timmy Applin pulls up, the two people who we now know are females and basically in his best Pashtun and his big gruff voice, you know, Tim Applin is eight foot tall. He starts yelling at them to put their hands up and somewhere along the line there that got misconstrued and they picked up the front of their um, dresses <laughs> and held, held their dresses up above their heads. 
And I, I need to say it as it was said. And Timmy's like, what? And I'm like, we all started sort of laughing. And Timmy's like, oh, oh. He's like, put, it, put them away. I, I don't want to see your boobs, you know. I don't want to see your boobs. And he sort of walks over like an old man flustered because, you know, Timmy was sort of a similar age to me. I think he's 35 or something like that. Mm. He's over there waving for them to put their tops down. And while all this is happening, Cam Baird walks back up with Merv. And uh, no, sorry, not with Merv, with the other gentleman who's still in. And he just yells out, what the fuck's going on here? You've got so-and-so on the ground wrestling this guy. And he says, Merv, help him out. Get those plastic cuffs on him. And then he sort of says to Tim, Tim, would you stop undressing the locals? You know, <laughs> like it, was just, it was such a bizarre situation after we just had a really good gunfight. You know, mm. it was just, yeah, it was one of those times. That is cool. I love it. That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, mate. Fun. We've got a mutual, well, we had a mutual friend as well. I'm, I'm not sure that you know that I was friends with Ben Chuck. Ben was on a sniper course that I ran as one of the staff and we did some concentration stuff over the years together as well. Plus he was on a deployment that I was on too with Alpha Company. Of all the guys who were killed from 4-Hour Commando and 2-Commando Regiment, I think Ben Chuck's loss was the, the thing that I felt the most, even even more than, than Woody um, in a different way because Brett Wood was, you know, he was my era. He was a warrior. It's sort of, I saw it as a fitting Oh, it sounds terrible, but I saw it as a as a fitting way for for Brett to be remembered, you know. But but Ben Chuck had this. You know, he was the best looking guy in the in in the regiment. No, he was the best looking guy in the army at the time. Um, he yeah. just exuded life. You know, he loved it, and um and his loss was really difficult for me for me actually. Many years to come, didn't he? Yeah, he was going to be something special, that's for sure. And and I know that um another friend of mine, Hodjo, took it quite badly as well. Well, not badly, but. It was upsetting. In fact, I got a story about Ben Chuck. So I I arrived to your company about um, three weeks before my platoon and the rest of my company headquarters came, and so I was there just after the Black Hawk crash. So I was actually there for the um, the ramp ceremony, um, believe it or not. And um, and I remember being there also to provide some support to. to- um, Craig and some other guys there, you know, and everyone seemed to have yeah. accepted it and they understood what was happening. Anyway, you guys all left, my guys arrived, and we got into it. You know, we got into the fighting season, and about oh, about three months in, we were doing some time sensitive targeting one one week, and that night while I was doing the orders, it was really late. It would have been after midnight. I was sitting there writing the orders out and I was in the in the mess hall you remember the mess hall I was in the mess hall by myself and it's got these two doors that you can come in it's got all these plastic drapes down the doors to stop all the the Afghan flies which are the size of camels I'd made myself I'd made myself a you know when you're a a commando you don't make a piece of toast you make a loaf of toast so I'd made a loaf of toast (laughs) and a cup of coffee and uh And I was sitting there eating this loaf of toasted bread um, with, with, you know, Vegemite and, and writing these orders out in my notebook for the next day. And um, which I think it was 7 o'clock I had to give orders, so it was like 2 in the morning. And I look up, someone walks through the out door, so down the other end, walks out the out door into, into in there, and they start walking over towards me, and it's, it's Ben Chuck. And he's, he walks towards me, and he walks over to the toast machine, he makes himself a couple of pieces of toast. And then he sits down at the table that I'm at, and I'm obviously frozen solid, like I'm looking at a ghost. This is this is months later, and he just looks at me, finishes his toast, so he gives me that you know that that smile. He gives like like nod and little little wink sort of thing, gets up and he walks out, and he, and he just walks off. And I remember looking around, and then I've sort of like I've sort of shaken my head and gone, "Fuck, I must have just fallen asleep and just dreamed that." And um, yeah. 
which would be and I, I reconciled the fact that I just dreamt this whole thing except mm. except then I look over and there's this plate with a knife on it right with the condensation that you have after the piece of bread's been taken off it and I'm like fuck was that there before and I couldn't I couldn't for the life of me remember if the table was clear when I sat down or not and so now there's this like little bit of doubt in my mind that actually that happened and I know it's as crazy, batshit crazy as you can possibly. And of all the places in the world to have something absolutely bizarre happen, Afghanistan is the place that it's going to happen. You know, with its sure. you know th- hundreds of thousands of years of history in the joint, but yeah. um, and, and the loss of whole armies in the place. But um, yeah, it was just the most. And I don't believe in don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in any of that sort of stuff so even to this day. But I still swear well, that he, I still swear he walked in there. Mm. Isn't that bizarre? Well, you know, I think Afghanistan, yeah, absolutely. And I think Afghanistan is the land of, you know, spirits and ghosts. I mean, if there's going to be any place that it is, it would probably be over there, mate, because as you, as you just alluded to, you know, like mm. there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years people have been going there and dying. Oh, in different thousands. Places. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it is an interesting look, place. Um, it is an interesting place. And there's nothing quite like the sunsets and the sunrises and the when the wind comes in and if it ever rains and you're there to see the rain as well, it's bizarre. It's it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, it is. It's it's gorgeous, you know. And if, if they could ever if they could ever clear all the ordnance and crap, tidy that country up enough, the four wheel drive tours and stuff that you could do there would just be insane, you know, like yeah. just be amazing. It's like uh, a country oh, full of the Kimberleys. Yeah, we had uh, biblical rain there in 2007 and mm. well, we were bogging cars and all sorts of stuff. Like it was just out of control the amount of rain we had there. And I've got photos of like it looking almost like sort of southeast Queensland, just inland of here, like Kandanga and all that, where it's just beautiful green grass. Mm. Like, and it's just, yeah, it is. It's uh, the land of land of contrast, that's for sure. And so you were there You were there for the, the helicopter crash. Um, what do you remember that night? Um, I remember, and this sort of ties in with what I was saying about earlier, mate, with um, in regards to telling you know, Merv and Tim, you know, that if something hasn't happened already, it's not going to happen because that sort of continued to go through our life in the military together because we just finished, um, we just had that five-day battle at Shawali Cot where it was really intense war fighting, especially the first two days was seriously insane, the amount of gunfire going down range and no one got hurt. But mm. like, we didn't have one casualty, you know, and we had... You know, and that, particularly that first day, we were on Overwatch. Uh, my team was on Overwatch with uh, Robbo and Ben Chuck and mm. those guys, Hambo, I think, and stuff like that. Anyway, um, all the guys are out now. But um, So we were up there with those guys and we had that much concentrated, intense, accurate fires from PKMs, RPGs, you name it. We had an RPG slam into a rock beside our turf. It didn't explode. Mm. I've got a photo I've got a photo with holding this rocket up that just slammed into the rock right beside us and it would have killed, you know, three dudes. Mm. And so the amount of firing and war fighting that happened and even in the three days, three days after the initial two, uh, we did some mop-up operations and we're still fighting. Uh, we got home from that. And then we started a serial uh, of sort of daytime helicopter, you know, shaping operations and mop-up operations, I suppose, you know, for want of a better word, where we'd just go into certain areas and just see how we were still tracking with enemy movement. And um, it was one of those afternoons. So we sort of, our sister platoon would do an operation and then we'd go on the next day. And it would go anywhere from, say, a couple of hours to six hours or whatever, however, however it ended up. And it was... On one afternoon, 
don't know if it was a day off or if it was just before they went. Anyway, I was sitting down the back where we had the uh, the the deck and everything made at the back there. Yeah, I was sitting out there with um, Timmy Applin. You're welcome. We made that. Yeah, deck. you're welcome. Well, it's well made. It was awesome. We certainly uh, put it through its bloody paces. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was sitting there with Timmy Applin one afternoon. I think it was the afternoon before they took off that evening, actually. And I said to him, "Well, mate, only a few weeks to go." And if no one got whacked during that last five days, mm. no one's going to, we're all going home because, and I regret those words yeah. to this day because Timmy and I at that stage, after our 209 trip, we went to uh, New Zealand with the family, yeah, both families. Uh, we mm. took all the kids over there, snowboarding and skiing and stuff like that. Mm. And we'd already booked with the girls and the kids to go to Threadbow um on our return so mm. we were sitting there talking shit about going skiing and stuff like that and and blah 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 and we weren't taking things for granted but it was just us two talking shit again and mm. i was just trying to make light of the moment and i said well mate look you know we'll get through these next few weeks pretty easy i think because you know that was a yeah. bloody heavy five days and if nothing's happened nothing's going to happen anyway so that night you mm. know the the helo went down and we got stood too, and then we flew out there. And um, when we were on the hard deck, actually waiting to get onto the helos to, to go back out there and, and sort of put some relief in place for mm. our accessible turn that had been out there already, mm. um, we'd heard word come through that there was, you know, possible three or four deaths. Mm. And knowing, knowing everyone on that chopper, mm. um, it was also the Sierra team that I'd just spent the five days in Shwali Cot with. Yeah. And Ben Chuck. Ben Chuck and Robbo and the other guys, there's a couple of guys still in, so I don't want to say their names, but mm. um, uh, Tony was there as well. He's out now. I know that. Mm. Anyway, they're the guys that we were hanging with. And I was actually, after this trip, we were going, I was going on my sniper course under those guys. Mm. So that those couple of days that I spent uh, with those guys at Shwali Cot, mm. Ben Chuck was actually uh, sort of, he gave me his SR25 and he was calling me in on targets and he was spotting for me and he was already starting to teach me. And I, I just love the guy, mate. We, yeah. We cracked a really cool friendship in a short period of time. And, you know, we were talking about surfing and helicopter flying and all sorts of stuff. And mm. so mm. I, I really felt the loss of him as well. But mm. um, anyway, I digress. So while we're on the tarmac waiting to get in the helos and get out there, um, you know, my team commander came over and said, and I said, listen, you got to tell me, is Timmy one of the dudes? Mm. And he goes, yes. He goes, and Chuck and Scotty Palmer and, Jeez. We think one of the, uh, you know, Scotty Palmer, another great guy, mm. right? And um, and there was also uh, one of the air crew members. So mm. once again, I was just shattered. Yeah. Anyway, we went out there and, you know, you see the scene and we had to do an emu bowl um, to make sure that things weren't still lying around. And that meant, you know, mm. parts of people as well as mm. bits of equipment. Tough. And, you know, I think things you don't want people to get, you know. Yeah. So um, we did all that. And, yeah, it was a really, I mean, and this is where my biggest thing come from. And this is what I try and teach my kids, mate, okay, is mm. that someone's always having a worse day than you. Yeah. Because when I was out there, I was feeling so sorry for myself because I'm like, fuck, you know, like, yeah. excuse me for swearing. Yeah. But That's cool. I was like, how, how can these, you know, these guys, you know, such – full of life and that you know and it is true like the good die young you know mm. and and like chuck going and timmy going and scotty and and all the other guys were really really injured badly and i've been through stuff like this before myself 
But standing there, I was feeling sorry for myself because it's like I've just lost my best mate and, you know, I've lost this guy who's teaching me. He's going to teach me how to be a sniper and I really looked up to him. And it was the same scenario as when I was in my first plane crash and Steve Daly was this uh, SASR warrior you know he's a really big fit guy he looked after me i trained in the afternoons after our skydiving during the day at pds we trained together he took an interest in me because i was a young guy wanted to go to that unit and all that sort of stuff right mm-hmm. so once again it was these guys that i really looked up to um taken away and i'm sitting there feeling sorry for myself and then i just had an epiphany and i went you know what's tash and the kids gonna think when they find out mm-hmm. and it's a real wake-up call to me it's like how are they going to feel? Mm. And stop feeling sorry for yourself, get mm. back on the wagon, do the job, be professional mm. and blah, blah, blah. And, and that just resonates with me all the time now. And I, I say to my boys all the time and my little girl that, you know, okay, so, you know, in lockdown, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. But you know what? You've still got internet. You can still watch a movie. You've still got your health. You, you know, you can still have an ice cream out of the freezer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere else, someone's doing it really tough, always doing it tougher than you. Yeah, it's true. Someone's some some kid somewhere is in a sh- a slum in India, where they're all sick. Mm. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. So no matter how bad your day is, um, you know, there's always going to be someone having a worse day than you. So always look on the bright side. You know. Yeah, and my, you know, part of the part of my motto for Warrior U is you are the mission, and the idea is that, um, you know, you work on yourself. Self improvement is is the main thing but the other aspect to that is that we celebrate you know we we live a life worth living and we celebrate we celebrate their lives as opposed to mourn their loss you know yeah absolutely yeah that's true it's very true and look you know i have to say you know i you know i had a bit of depression and stuff like that. i don't even think it's depression i think it was more survivor's guilt i think i've had this survivor's guilt thing going on in and out of my life over my time from when I had the first plane crash and, and stuff like that and right up until when I got out and then you know Merv was killed the following year and then the following year after that you know Cam Baird was killed along with a myriad of other guys obviously mm. but these are guys that are really close to me and meant something to me mm. dying uh, myself and a mate of mine took um of the legends car um being half of our team from that first trip is really poignant you know like are you in that photo? And then? and I mean, I even look at um, no, no, we took the photo. Oh. Our 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 car is the sister shot, so I've got the other photo of our car, and the the two chaps uh, I'm out, but they're still serving. So mm. so we basically got the two shots of the same car. I was sitting, yeah, same position with our car, and so oh. I just look back on all that, and um, we'll put the yeah, legend. I just look at it and go. We'll put the legend car up as the. It's we'll, in the unit, isn't it? It's up on somewhere. We'll, we'll use it as the um as the cover for this podcast as well. Hey, um, oh. listen, it's strange that you and I would would even be friends or talking because I'm a cross country and downhill skier, and you're a snowboarder. Um, Maybe we should do that now. <laughs> <laughs> but your your um your kids are pretty good snowboarders too, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, I decided once I got out that I was just gonna give my kids the chance at just living life and having a great life, uh, not spoil them, even though I probably failed in that area, <laughs> not, not spoil them for the sake of spoiling them. But, you know, like you and I, you know, everyone who served overseas, it just in at least in that one country, and there's plenty of countries are the same. You look at the little kids over there and, you know, excuse the French, they've been given a shit sandwich straight out the bat. You know, yeah. like our kids, I tell them they've won a lotto every day yeah. because where they're living, mm. you know, 
So, yeah, one's a really good snowboarder, mate. He's trying, you know, he wants to, you know, do the X Games, the Olympics and that sort of stuff. And he's, he's on the right track. He's mm. doing really big man tricks for a 14-year-old. And, you know, he's got great work ethic. He's mm. still doing great at school and stuff. And great. as long as he keeps up the effort of mm. everything, mm. then we'll allow him to keep going. Uh, my oldest son, he's, uh, he's a brainiac. So he's obviously just like his mum. Mm. He's, you know, he's got the marks to be a doctor the way he's going. Not that he wants to be one, but he's a great surfer and a snowboarder as well. But mm. he just loves doing it for the love of doing it. Mm. He doesn't compete. And my little girl, I think she's got the best of both worlds because she's, she's got the hate of school that I had. Mm. <laughs> um, but she's got a love of life, you know, and she's, yeah. a, she's a real little weapon. So, look, I'm just... Whenever I think about the guys who uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice for us, and, and that means guys who you know are missing limbs and stuff like that as well, mm-hmm. have come home injured, and whether it be mentally or physically, mm-hmm. I am trying my hardest to be a good person mm-hmm. and produce good people for this country because that's the opportunity that those guys have afforded us. And I don't say that lightly. I really, I know you, I know you guys, I know everyone who serves is the same. I just mm-hmm. think. Um, I don't want to waste an opportunity. So I look at the kids and I tell them if they, if they desire and they work hard and they show and they put the effort in, mm. then we'll back them as much as we can. And would you change anything that happened in, in your career, even the bad stuff? No, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, I have to say the one thing I'd love to change is I, I would have loved another 10 years in the unit, you know. Mm. Like I Me just, too. I, loved it. <laughs> I really, yeah, I just loved it that much yeah. and I really miss it, you know. And, yeah. And um, look, there's probably guys that, you know, I don't know, I, I didn't get on with or whatever. I don't really know. I'd love to go back down to the unit one day and, um, you know, have a look at the stone and stuff like that. I'd just mm. it'd be, I've, I haven't had really good closure with my ending of the unit. So I can't, I sort of really want to get back down there at some stage, you know, and um, and just have a walk around and, and feel the environment down there. So yeah. hopefully one day that happens. And when are we going to hang out in Japan, mate? Mate, you can find the Parkinson clan in Japan uh, anytime from mid-December through to mid-February generally. So anytime you want to come over, I've, uh, there's another couple of chaps in the unit that I've thrown the, the gauntlet out and said, make sure you come over because um, that's an amazing place. And we're very lucky to have a very small little place there. And um, what's the use of having that thing if you don't share it? You know, like it's it's an amazing place. And the more people that I can share that with and give it to, whether I'm there or not, I'm more than happy, mate. So if you ever want to go there, you let me well, know and off you go. The, the way I'm seeing it, mate, is, and I think the listeners to this podcast today will be thinking the same thing. You know, if, if you and I don't sit down and start nutting out the framework for, for the Dean Parkinson book, then we're, we're doing the nation a disservice because your story and the story of the guys you've served with needs to be told through you, I think. Um, yeah, it's a great story, one of resilience and, you know, to have your back broken in an aircraft accident and then end up, end up with a a VC winner, you know, in that, oh, in yeah. that team. That's just incredible. Yeah. Amazing. I've, I've been very blessed, mate, you know, and um, we've left, left a lot of the, left a lot of the good sort of fun sort of stories that we sort of can't really talk about here. Um, yeah. But um, I've been really blessed, mate, to, you know, I've walked a fine line. I think I've, you know, I've been very close to, you know, had my number up quite a few times through the plane crashes and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. And, uh, and then the big sky theory with all the rounds flying around overseas and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. you just got to wonder the training and all that doesn't come into it. I think just people are on a path. I sort of really believe that you're on a path to, to where you're supposed to be. Yeah. You get to, you get to choose left or right sometimes, but generally speaking, you're going to end up in the same spot. And, mm-hmm. um, 
that's why you just mentioned Woody before, and you know, you look at you look at Cam Baird, you know, and um, you know those type of characters, just gentlemen, you know, great blokes, great leaders, people who lead from the front, you know, say what they say and do what they say. Mm. Just very privileged to have walked the same ground as them. Yeah, me too. On that note, mate, let's catch up socially. Let's have a chat after this about some other stuff. Good on you, mate. Thanks for having me, Bram. I really appreciate the um, the interest, mate, and no. Um, take care. No, thank you. And thanks for letting me tell you my story about, um, about Ben. <laughs> So, that's it folks, 100 episodes done and dusted. Next season, I'm going to be working with Acast to deliver a more refined and quality product. I know, who would have thought? Who could get any better than this? But anyway, we will be. I'm playing with the show format and we'll be investigating leaders throughout history, people who have shown huge resilience and innovators in the area of human optimization. I want you all to remember that you are your most important mission. You get that right, and everything else will fall into place. Catch you in Season 2. Okay. It wouldn't have been a Warrior You podcast without an end of podcast club giveaway, would it? So, if you send me a private message uh, telling me you're the end of podcast club, I'll send you, or I'll choose someone, I won't send you all, I'll choose someone to send a signed copy of The Commando Way. See you in Season 2, gang. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.